Psalm 29. I remember being in graduate school and working at a coffee shop and listening to the debates that my coworkers would have because it was a decent amount of downtime and, you know, you're all young folks and most of these folks were really opinionated. So lots of debates about coffee or food or politics or um, music. And I remember one pretty heated debate with two employees where they were arguing about Bob Dylan. And what they were arguing about was whether he had a good voice or not. And one of them just, they couldn't believe one another. One of them could not believe that the other one thought Bob Dylan had a good voice. He thought it was just so apparent Bob Dylan has a horrible voice. And the other one, same thing, couldn't believe that this employee didn't know that Bob Dylan had a great voice, right? And so they started talking about what qualifies a, a good voice. Well, Psalm 29, it's, it's all about God's voice. That's the refrain that we'll see throughout the whole thing. And in particular, why he has the kind of voice that makes him worthy of worship, That's what Psalm 29 is about. So hear the word of the Lord. This is what we're told there. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Well, this psalm, you can see it on that line, it's pretty clearly divided into two main sections. So there's a second section that begins in verse 3. That's the real meat of this psalm. That's the main idea. But before that, the psalmist, who's King David, gives us an introduction, kind of sets up the rest of the psalm for us. And in verses 1 and 2, in the beginning of 3, He's teaching us about some preliminary matters that set up the main point. And there are two preliminary matters to deal with. So look at verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So two preliminary matters. First one we see in this introduction, God deserves worship. That's the first preliminary matter, part of this introduction. God deserves worship. Look at what the psalmist is telling the angels in heaven to do in the second half of verse one. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. So everyone in the universe, including the angels of heaven, they're supposed to look at the Lord and recognize how great he is. That's what they're supposed to do. That's what that word glory is getting after. That's a word where you'll, you'll read it in scripture. We'll talk about it, but sometimes it's easy to forget. Okay, what, what does this mean? What's that word glory getting after? I like the way the, this uh, pastor John Piper says it. He says, God's glory is when his perfection goes public. It's when God's perfection goes public. So, so when God's character, who he is, when that's reflected out in his world and recognized and noted, That's his glory. So, for example, God is strong whether we say he is or not. If we say God is not strong, that doesn't change reality. 
God remains strong. But, but when you say God is strong, when you recognize it, you're, you're giving him glory. You're taking his strength and you're making it public for other folks to, to hear about it. That's glorifying God. And that, by the way, is the sole reason you were created. The sole reason I was created. You were created, I was created to worship God. That's why we were created. In Psalm 29, it's, it's not just telling us that as, that as Christians. If you're here and you're not a Christian, or you're not sure what you think about Jesus, you were created just like the rest of us for one sole purpose, to glorify the Lord. This is Psalm 148, verse 7. Praise the Lord from the earth, kings of the earth and all peoples. Let them praise the name of the Lord. So everybody sitting here was created for this one main purpose, to glorify the Lord. And we see the main reason for that in verse 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. So that word due, you may be part of an organization where you have to pay dues. Uh, So the money you owe that organization every year. Well, the dues that we owe God are to glorify him. That's what we owe him. But, But we don't owe him this glory because of our membership in some club. We don't even fundamentally owe this glory to God because of something he's done for us, although that ratchets up the the gratitude that we should give to him. No, in verse 2, David says we owe God glory simply because of his name. So in other words, because of God's character, he deserves glory. Not because of anything he's done for us, but just because of who he is, he deserves glory. God is, he's so much better than everything else in the universe that his mere existence creates a debt for everything else. And that debt is glory that we owe him. That's what this word holiness at the end of verse 2 is getting at. Holiness means God is set apart from everything else. He's in his own category. There's God, and then there's everything else. He's fundamentally different. Nothing else in the universe deserves worship. We give other things worship, but we shouldn't. Nothing else deserves worship, but, but God does. And there are lots of ways in which God is different from everything else in the universe, but the one Psalm 29 focuses in on is the nature of God's voice. And this is the refrain, again, we see throughout the Psalm. So verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. Verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. Verse 5, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. Verse 8, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. Verse 9, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. And this is the second preliminary matter the psalmist teaches us before we get into the main idea of the psalm. He tells us how we should think about the voice of the Lord. And here it is, preliminary matter number two, God's voice equals God. They're synonymous. God's voice equals God. That's why the two can be used interchangeably in this psalm. Look at verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. So who is over the waters? Well, the the beginning of verse 3 says it's the voice of the Lord. But then the end of verse 3 says the Lord is over the waters. We see the same thing in verse 5. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars. So who is it? Is it the voice of the Lord or is it the Lord? It's both. They're used interchangeably. God's voice equals God. And this is so important for us to understand because it wasn't just the psalmist that could hear God's voice. We still have God's voice today. And it's the scriptures. 
It's the Bible. We still have access to God's word. The scriptures are the place where God speaks. And again, the voice of God equals God. Listen to the way we say it in in our church's confession of faith. We say, we believe that the 66 books of the Bible are the word of God, meaning our reaction to God's word is our reaction to God. And the reason it works this way is, is because the Bible is simply God revealing himself to us. So God's voice equals God. And and what this means is God and his word share all the same attributes. Every single one. God and his word, the Bible, they share all the same attributes. And and this is significant to understand because there's certain authors, there's even certain pastors, they would say that the Bible has errors and is wrong about particular things. It's right about some stuff, but it's wrong about some things. So maybe some of the miracle stories didn't happen, or maybe the teaching on men's and women's roles is incorrect, or maybe the teaching about hell is misguided and we've kind of needed to move past that. So for these folks, they think God and his voice can be separated. So God's voice can be wrong about some things, but you know, sure, God's right about everything, but scripture can be wrong. They separate those things. Scripture can be over here. God's voice can be over here, but that's not the way it works. So I don't know if you, if anybody watched Superman movies growing up or Superman TV shows or cartoons, but Clark Kent, Superman, right? Clark Kent's his secret identity. They can not be in two places at once. So that's the whole thing, right? Superman will be somewhere and Clark Kent's never around. And everybody's always like, I wonder where Clark went, you know? And they just never put it together. Well, he's got those glasses. So you, you, could, you could never be able to, a completely different person. So they're always kind of curious about that. Oh, well, Clark's, Clark's not around. Well, they can't be in the same place at, uh, or different places at, at the same time. Well, that's God and his word. They share all the same attributes, right? God's word is perfect because God is perfect. If God's word could be wrong about something, that means God could be wrong about that thing. We know, of course, that's, that's not true. Praise the Lord. God's, God's word isn't wrong about anything because God isn't wrong about anything. Verse five again, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars. God's voice equals God. So that's what the meat of this psalm is about. So we're taught that, that one reason we should glorify the Lord is because of his voice. So what is it about his voice that makes it unique? Well, we're, t- we're taught here basically that God's voice is like a storm. The psalmist uses this illustration throughout And this is the way we're going to look at the rest of the passage. His voice is like a storm in three ways. So God's voice is like thunder, meaning it's powerful. His voice is like lightning, meaning it's effective. And his voice is like a a gale force wind, a powerful wind, meaning it's scary. So the first thing we see, God's voice is like thunder. It's powerful. Verse three, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful the voice of the Lord is full of majesty. So again, the picture we're given is, is of a storm that rolls in over a body of water. And the God's voice is like the thunder that you would hear in, in the middle of that storm. And the psalmist tells us what he means by that. Verse four, the voice of the Lord is powerful. And thunder is such a good picture of this, right? It's such a distinct event. It's such a distinct sound. It's so loud. It's so deep. It's not something that can be imitated. It's so far reaching. There are a few sounds that my kids could hear up at our house, two miles up the road, that I could also hear down here, but thunder is one of them. It's powerful. We can both hear that single roll of thunder. And, and for all these reasons, you may have noticed that if you're with a group of people and there's a roll of thunder, 
people will stop and somebody will comment on it. Thunder doesn't happen and then everybody just continues on with their conversation. Isn't that wild? We've all heard thunder thousands of times. But think about it. The next time you hear a storm, if there's thunder, somebody in that group will say, ooh, thunder, you know? That's the way it goes. Thunder requires attention. Well, that's, that's what David is getting at in the second half of verse 4. He says, the voice of the Lord is full of majesty. That's a word that was used for kings. So when a king approaches, everything stops. He carries weight with him. Thunder does the same thing. People recognize it. It stops you in your tracks. Well, that's just a small picture of the weight that God brings with him every time he speaks. His voice is like thunder. So the question for us is, do we respond the way we should to God's word? Do we respond this way to God's word? Does his word stop us in our tracks the way that thunder does? Do we recognize in God's word the same kind of power that we recognize in thunder? Think about it practically. If if you're headed towards a particular sin, so you can see Okay, I've, I think I'm about to lust, or I'm about to get unrighteously angry, or, or I'm about to gossip. And then if the Holy Spirit calls to mind what God's Word says about sin in general, or, or that particular sin, how often does the voice of God's Word stop you in your tracks, where you quit moving toward that sin because of God's Word? Or, or think about it a different way. We've all been at the beach or, or at the lake when a storm rolls in, and if you can do it from a safe spot, it's great to watch that storm right? That's, that's something, in fact, that if you have the opportunity to do it, I bet you've been willing to forsake other activities in order to watch that storm. It's an incredible thing. Well, do you ever do that with God's word? So can you think of times where you will forsake some excitement the world offers in order to be excited by the majesty and the power of the Bible? You'll turn your attention off those other things and, and put it on God's word. So maybe you will put your phone in the other room so you can focus on the word or you'll close your email or you'll turn the TV off. You turn from things like that in order to see the majesty of God in his word. We're given a great prayer in Psalm 119, verse 18. It's usually when I read scripture, it's usually the thing that I'll pray. Super short, but the psalmist says, God, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your word. That's a good prayer to pray before you read scripture. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your word. So pray that you would always hear the word like thunder. Verse three, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. But second, David teaches us God's voice is also like lightning. Thunder and lightning go together. It's also like lightning. Verse five, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. So it's it's not just that God's word is powerful in the abstract. It's not just theoretically powerful, like a dog that barks really loud, but, but would never actually bite somebody. No, God's word actually does things. His word is effective. So in verse five, we've got cedar trees that have been broken. And we know it's not thunder that breaks trees. That's not the way it works. No, it's what accompanies that thunder, which is lightning. Verse seven, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. So God's voice is like lightning and lightning is effective. 
And you may have seen the illustration that David used here. You, you may have seen a tree struck by lightning. It's an incredible thing to see a huge tree that's laying on the ground, something that would have taken humans some time and chainsaws to be able to knock over. And in an instant, the Lord does it with lightning out of nowhere and puts that tree on the ground. And lightning doesn't just break trees. It, it burns down houses. In fact, lightning can burn down an entire forest. It's an effective thing. Even animals have this instinct when they see a flash of lightning. Verse 6, he makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. I don't know when the last time is you saw a deer, but when they see you or hear you, it's amazing to see them jump away and how quick they are. That's what David is talking about here when he says skip like a calf. It's these people's response to God's word. He's telling the readers to, to think about what the animals do when they see lightning strike during a storm. The answer is they, they all jump away because in their animal nature, they intuitively realize that lightning can do something to them and, and they're scared of it. We, he's comparing that to God's voice. He says Lebanon here. That's, that's a region that's north of Jerusalem. And what God's saying is, is that his voice can make this entire region run like a deer. And we know what this is like too. If you're outside and you hear thunder, then you might think, oh, rain is coming. I should probably get inside. But if you see a crack of lightning, and especially if you realize that it's close, that's when we go indoors quick. Lightning is effective. Thunder can't do anything to you. Lightning can. Well, the psalmist is saying God's word is like lightning. It's, it's effective. So what is it that God's word actually affects? Let's think briefly about three things. First, God's word saves non-Christians. That's the first way we'll look at that it's effective. It saves non-Christians. This is Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's God, God's word that creates faith in a sinful heart. So all of us here that are Christians, this is why we're Christians. God's word came to us, created faith in Christ in our heart. That's the reason that we believed is because God's word did it. The same way God creates life in Genesis 1 and 2 with his word. Same way that in Ezekiel 37, he takes all those dead bones and makes them a living army. He has Ezekiel preach his word to them. That's how he created spiritual life in you, through his word. And that's an amazing thing, right? Um, several years ago, we realized that we had a problem with our septic tank. Um, it actually uh, was clogged up with Christmas tree needles. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. It happens sometimes. We love Christmas trees. I got the biggest Christmas tree that'll fit in the living room. And so Christmas tree needles ended up in the sink, I guess, and, uh, and clogged the filter. Well, what we realized was there was no access to our septic tank other than to dig through the ground. And praise God, it was December when this happened, but praise God, in his kindness, the, the ground hadn't frozen yet. So we were able to dig down there, and then we built some risers, and, and so we're good now. But what the guy told me was, you know, if you had had this problem in the middle of winter, you would have had to get somebody to bring equipment and dig down to be able to get to your, your septic tank. Well, the, the sinful heart, Scripture teaches this, the sinful heart is, is a lot harder than the ground during the main winter. It's a lot harder to get to than that excavation equipment would be to, to get to our septic tank. It's actually impossible for humans to get to it. The only thing that can break into the rocky heart is God's word. Or to use the imagery of verse 5, he's the only one that can break the cedars. And again, breaking cedars is a lot easier than, than breaking through a hard heart. But that's exactly what God's word did with you. You weren't interested in the Lord, not in your own nature, you would have continued to turn away from him. But, but then, praise God, somebody shared his word with you, whether it was a family member or a friend 
or a pastor or your own reading of Scripture. And that word got in and, and broke up your heart and, and changed you. And this is why if, if we've got friends or extended family members or kids who are non-Christians, our strategy should be centered on trying to get the word to them because it's only the word that can break up somebody's heart, that can bring somebody to, to faith in Christ. So this is the first way we see God's word be effective. It, it changes non-Christians into Christians. But praise the Lord, there's application for Christians too because God's word also grows Christians. Listen to the way Paul says it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So this is how Jesus uses the Bible in our Christian lives. He uses the Bible to cleanse us from sin to make us holier, to get rid of our spots and wrinkles, like he says in Ephesians 5. In other words, God's word is what sanctifies us as Christians. It's not just the tool that brought you to Christ. It's also the tool that continues to make you look more like Christ. So, application, do you treat God's word this way? Do you believe that God's word really does have the effect of changing your life as easily as lightning can change a tree? And to figure out if we really believe that, just think about how regularly you pursue God's word. How regularly do you pursue God's word? To use the imagery of verses five and seven, do you put yourself out in the lightning storm? Do you put yourself around God's word so, so it can continually strike you? Or are you oftentimes staying away from God's word? Staying inside, away from the storm. We wanna be like Jesus, right? Who during his temptation with the devil compared God's word to bread to show how much he needed it, that it was his sustenance. He, he simply had to have it. And we should pray to have that same desire. And, and when you put yourself in God's word, it will strike you. For the Christian, it, it will be effective. That's one of the most incredible proofs the Bible really is God's word. It doesn't matter how many times you've read a particular verse, it continues to affect you. God's word continues to affect his people, even if they've read it a hundred times. And that's why in this church, we try to center everything around the Bible. That's why we pick the songs that we pick. That's why we have so many scripture readings. That's why the sermon is the center of our time together. We say it this way in our confession of faith. God's word is the only instrument that God promises will always accomplish his purposes and should therefore be the center of ministry in the individual Christian life and the life of the church. So God's word saves non-Christians. It grows Christians. But third, it builds up judgment for all of God's enemies, for those that continue and end up fully rejecting Christ. The prophet Jeremiah, he sums up all three of these things. In chapter one, verse nine of his prophecy in Jeremiah, he says, the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So God's word effectively saves non-Christians. It grows us as Christians, but it also builds up judgment for God's enemies. It overthrows. Listen to Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So God's word, it 
it shines a spotlight on rebellion against God that, that happens in the sinful human heart. It's his words like a district attorney that's gathering evidence to present before a judge of the non-Christian's guilt. And that's why if you're here and you're not a Christian, what you need to do is flee to Jesus because you're guilty. Just like we all are guilty. We all have sin. But the, the only way to have our sins atoned for is to come to Christ, to trust in him that his work on the cross was effective to pay for all of our sins. And then we, we don't have any guilt any longer. We're giving it, given an innocent verdict through trust alone in Christ alone. So the word builds up guilt as well. And for each of these tasks of God's voice, it's as effortless as lightning that splits a tree open in a split second. Verse five, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Verse seven, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. Well, that final part, that's a pretty scary prospect, the, the idea of God's voice building up judgment for those that reject, reject Christ. And this judgment of God's word, it, it's the final way David compares God's voice to a storm. This is the final point. God's voice is like a gale force wind, a powerful wind. It's scary. Verse eight, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare and in his temple, all cry glory. So he's comparing God's voice to strong winds that, that accompany a storm. In verse eight, he talks about how these winds shake the wilderness. And we've all experienced this in Maine. So the, the damage around our house in the forest and, and the times our house has gone without power for the longest wasn't in the winter. It was times in the fall and in the spring when there were big storms and there was lots of wind and it knocked down tons and tons of, of trees. <laughs> In verse 8, he talks about that. Those winds shook the wilderness. The middle of verse 9, they strip the forest bare. You could walk out in the woods after one of those storms, and there's trees just laying around, littering the ground. That's because, that's because wind is powerful. It had stripped the forest bare. And see, that's what God's voice will do one day when Jesus returns to finally judge the world. He'll strip the forest bare. And that's a terrifying thought, but, but here's the critical thing to note in our passage. Not everybody is afraid of the shaking. So when we hear it that way, we think, oh, that is scary. But in this passage, not everybody is afraid of that future shaking. Look at the middle of verse 9 again. He strips the forest's bare, and in his temple all cry glory. So during the future windstorm of God's judgment, his people aren't ducking down the way that you would think they would. They're, they're not scared of this storm. No, they're standing in the temple and they're crying out glory to God. So how does that work? This gale force wind of God's voice, it's shaking the world in judgment and yet his people are calm and peaceful and they're in the temple worshiping. They, they have that final word we see in verse 11. They have peace. So how can that be? Well, the answer is found really clearly in the passage that Wendy read earlier, the New Testament reading, Hebrews 12. So in that chapter, the author of Hebrews, he, he's comparing one event of God's earthly judgment, which came on Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. He's comparing that with God's future ultimate judgment. And this is what he says, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26. At that time, God's voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens when he returns in judgment. 
This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So he's saying, one day I'm going to shake the entire universe in judgment. But, but there will be something, we're told, that will not be shaken, and here's what it is. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So God's kingdom won't be shaken. The wind of a judgment will shake everything else. It won't shake the kingdom. And of course, the way to be in the kingdom is by trusting in the king of the kingdom, who's Christ. We're brought into the kingdom by trusting in the king, by placing our our full hope in his perfect life and perfect death and resurrection on our behalf. It's faith alone in the king alone that brings us into this kingdom, which will not be shaken. And when we're made part of Christ, when we trust in him, we're we're made part of the kingdom. And, And the winds of judgment don't come into the gates of the kingdom because Jesus already bore the full power of those winds on the cross. He already suffered under that punishment. And if you're trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation, your sins have already been judged. Christ was in that storm on your behalf. So you don't have to bear the weight of that. And so one day we'll be inside that kingdom and we'll be able to look outside and see the storm raging and those gale force winds stripping the forest to pieces, but we'll be perfectly safe because we'll be with the king. And on that day, the only things that will be shaken out of your existence are Satan and sin and death. That's what the winds will carry away for us. And the way God will finally defeat those enemies isn't with his hands or some conventional weapon or some literal army. He'll defeat those enemies with his voice. The way Revelation 2.16 says it, he'll defeat those enemies with the sword of his mouth. Verse 9 in our passage, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. 